Pulse Audio Podcast Network. One last time, we're going to try this fucking video. Welcome to Whining About Herstory, the women's history podcast where two longtime besties talk about women you probably haven't heard of and drink a fuck ton of wine because technology is garbage. You know, third time's a charm. Fucking trash. Seriously, I'm never going to stop bitching about how a camera doesn't record for more, for more than 30, 30 minutes, minutes at a time. My phone will record for more than 30 minutes at a time. I know, it's bullshit. And it's garbage. But not as big of garbage as this. But we figured it out. And now we did, we were thinking like we had to set a timer for every 30 minutes. I was like, oh my God, because then we have to watch the timer and figure out where we are in the sentence and oh, like stop for a break. But now we figured it out. Yes, my lovely husband was like, oh, you can just record it through the computer on this program and then you don't have to stop every 30 minutes and i'm like oh so if it doesn't work this time you're just not getting a video and yeah we'll move on just lots of jammy pictures it's fine uh i will say your husband has redeemed himself because he was the one where we were like the cameras didn't record past 30 minutes and he's like oh yeah oh yeah i forgot to tell you that and we're like oh my god <laughs> yeah. so now that he's like here now you don't have to stop every 30 minutes it's he's he's come back it's fine I'm jamming. I'm zen. I can like really settle into my jammies. I am again wearing my Jack Skellington onesie, looking fly as fuck. And Kelly. Yet again in a different set of pajamas. <laughs> I Every have, video I've switched. To I have wearing. one set of pajamas apparently, and Kelly's just like going through her jammy closet. She has so, a separate closet for jammies. These are actually Justin's, and you can tell that they're, it's a men's onesie because there's pockets. Bullshit. Pockets. Derivative. So, Patriarchy. I mean, it's way too big for me, but. It's it's comfy, except it's real warm. I'm very warm. So I'm a uh, I'm a holiday stealing skeleton, and Kelly's a Wookiee, traveling through space, <laughs> fighting the Empire I patriarchy. Might, I might cut that out because I can't make a Wookiee noise. Here, wait, wait, I want to try. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was actually really good. You like gotta get back in the yeah, throat. you do. I'm just like, <sighs> it's like trying to roll my R's in Spanish. This is terrible. Ooh. All right. Well, uh, for our non-patrons, uh, you could be seeing all this craziness, too, if you subscribe for as little as $1 a month to our Patreon. $1. And we've talked about this like three times now, so I'm not going to go into a whole deep spiel. Patrons know the deal. You guys should know the deal. But also, patrons are going to get some special treats yeah. in the mail. So look forward to that. You get it. You all get it. You hit the camera. Fuck you, camera. <laughs> oh, Vengeance funny. will be mine. <laughs> so we're drinking another thing of Sun Pop today. Because if you remember my story from like two or three weeks ago, I, I made Justin get two. Well, actually, he chose to get two. Yes, because um, so he's smart. Today we're drinking Tropical Moscato. And I think it's basically the same, but I'll read it anyway. So Sun Pop Tropical Moscato at Sun Pop Wines. We believe that life should be bright, colorful, and fun. That's easy to accomplish with our deliciously vibrant semi-sweet wines crafted with natural fruit flavors that delight the palate. Our tropical Moscato has notes of melon and pineapple. Pop open a bottle, pour a glass, and enjoy some fun in the sun. And it is actually sunny out today. Uh, yeah, I it's know. It's not warm. It's a little But cool. it's sunny. It's like a great day for a walk because you work up a sweat and then you get warm and you're fine. Right. It's fine. It was supposed to be like rainy all day and it it's not. It was so. only rainy the first half of the day, which in Minnesota is a blessing. 
seriously, Minnesota, you can experience all four seasons, seasons in, in like one day. One day, yeah. yeah. It's, it's bad. It's, I actually, knock on wood, I heard that we might get some you know what that begins nope, with nope, an S. Nope, nope, See, that's what I said, Jared. Like, it's came. Pa- at this point, it's almost past May. No. I was going to say, May is hit or miss. We've totally gotten snowstorms in May. And not just like but a it's weird usually like flurry. mid-May. Yeah, we got like two years ago, we got like blizzards. Like we May, got May lightning 15th. snow, you guys. Ridiculous. Kelly and I were studying for our finals. And, now, Grant, that was Wisconsin. But we were studying Close for enough. our finals. And there was lightning snow. Yeah. And, and that I was wasn't, like, that was like six years ago. But yeah, it was ridiculous. Like, is is this God telling me I'm not going to graduate? <laughs> like, what Spoiler, is Spoiler, we both did. Yes, it's fine. I'm definitely not Together. lying about having a degree. It's fine. Anyway, uh, what should we cheers to? A long what? weekend. It is. We are recording this for Memorial Day weekend. Yeah. So that means I have Monday off. going to come out quite a bit afterwards. Though I normally Two we weeks? try to do something for Memorial Day, but it like our timing our and time we had is some way weird, off. I was gonna say we're timey wimey bullshit, but a long weekend in remembrance of those who have served and lost their lives and made the ultimate sacrifice and their families. Yes. Cheers. Cheers. And thank you. Oh my god. Oh, this tastes like a Skittle. It's like a tropical starburst. Yeah. It tastes like candy. Oh like the strawberry was really good. This might have to be like my, I just want to sit and like drink get a bottle drunk. of wine. Yeah. No, we're finishing this bottle. Oh, none we, we finished the last one. Drew so. gets none of this. So if you want a good cheap wine, that's like summer in a glass sun pop at oh Target. Oh my God. Not seriously. a sponsor. I'm going to get on the river. Fill up my water bottle with a bottle of this. I'm gonna drink the whole goddamn bottle. I know I'm myself. going camping next weekend, and I'm like, mm. I might just have to get like just a cooler full of this. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, that's really good. I'm actually gonna move my wine so I'm not like maybe hitting my mic at some point. I know I'm readjusting over here. By the way, uh, I was very proud of myself. Speaking Memorial Day, hashtag humble brag. I was helping someone at work create a graphic like saying Happy Memorial Day, and they sent me a version. And it was like really peppy, like 4th of July cookout imagery. And I was like, "Mm, how about not? So I sent like a very like polite and thoughtful email. Like, you know, I totally get why you would think this. That's what people do on Memorial Day. Exactly. Memorial Day is very much uh, like the beginning of summer, long three day weekend, all of that stuff. But especially in the last few years, there's been a push to recenter the focus. And especially Memorial Day is not a day to thank veterans. It's a day to remember those who have lost their lives. Right. So it's like maybe do some flowers or some like Donate service to a charity. Hat. No, I'm saying for the graphic. Oh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Do like so the hats from the different services or flag. flowers or the yellow ribbon or, you know, what's the one for yeah. people serving? I think it's yellow, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. yeah, yellow ribbon. Um, and so like, I, I, you know, send like a, a play, like, Hey, I totally get where you're coming from, but, but let me, <laughs> let me help you, uh, with, with my experience living with a veteran who has very strong feelings about Memorial day. Yeah, and I think we've talked about this before. Very much hit or miss. Uh, and they revised it and it looked a lot better. And Good. I was like, oh my God, me being open to someone else's experiences helped me with my job and in my life. And this is awesome. Cause I feel like 10 years ago, I wouldn't have thought twice no. about that. You know, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's it's Memorial Day weekend. People cook out. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Nope. 
But yeah, hashtag humblebrag. This is why we need to listen to each other and be open to each other's feelings and experiences and makes us better, more empathetic, well-rounded people. Brought to you by Empathy. <laughs> so Kelly, not a sponsor. Not a spo- empathy is not a sponsor of this podcast. It's just a way of life and a crippling problem for us. I am. I'm like borderline an actual empath and it's it's a problem. Like it's actually a problem. Oh, like yeah. people are like having empathy is not a problem. I'm like, no, it is. It sucks because I cannot stand conflict because I feel bad for making the person feel bad and therefore it's easier for me to get stepped on versus stand up for myself. Well, and I'm one of those people that I don't even like watching people like on TV shows get like do something stupid and get embarrassed. Oh my God. You get like, um, because then I get embarrassed and I'm like, Oh my God. You get like a contact high of embarrassment. Yeah. And it's terrible. Yep. Embarrassment adjacent. Right. Okay. There's, there's highs and lows for everything. So Kelly, who am I whining about? Who are you whining about? I'm whining about Yuri Kochiyama. Okay. I thought you were going to say you, you said Yuri. Yuri. I thought thought you were going to say like, you or your like I just you Emily I'm so self-centered immediately I'm like this is about me (laughs) Emily is an amazing co-host end of story go ahead yeah yeah I (laughs) lived I podcasted and I will die the end question mark to be continued yes all right tell us about Yuri so her full name was Mary Yuriko Nakahara when she was born but much, she goes by Mary for like most of her life, but much later she changes it to Yuri. So that's what she was like known as. So okay. I'm, I'm going to go with Yuri. So she was born May 19th, 1921 in California. And her parents were both Japanese immigrants. She just had her 100th birthday. Because the day of this recording, yeah. it is May 28th, 2021. 2021. Yeah. Spooky. I think I was doing the research on her birthday. <laughs> I love it. Um. So she was born to Japanese immigrants, Seichi Nakahara, who was a fish merchant, so that was her dad, and Suyako um, Nakahara, who was a college-educated edu- homemaker and a piano teacher. Damn. People who can play the piano, just the coordination between the mind and the fingers oh, blows right. my... Like, it's, it's like... Hey, can you pat your head and rub your belly at the same time? No, then you can't play piano. Right. Like, you'll never be able to do it. And I didn't look into her mom, but I thought it was it was interesting because she, she was college, college educated and a homemaker. So I was like, in my mind, like I said, I didn't look into her. And there probably wouldn't have been an, a lot because I don't think she, like, did anything, you know. But, like, I was wondering because we've had this conversation before. Like, was it a, oh, I'm married now, so I have to be a homemaker? Or was yep. it a choice? You know, like... I I didn't look into her mom, but I'm kind of like, hmm, I wonder, you know, given the society she grew up in or was from, I'm assuming it was, I'm married, I'm going to be a homemaker and wife or mother now, but. I actually, the woman I'm covering next week kind of has that dilemma where basically she's on this career track, she's highly educated, and if she gets married, all of that goes away because now she just has to be a wife. Yep. And being a wife is a great thing, but when you have to choose between having your own shit going on and being a wife, that's a problem. But yeah. Yeah. we. I mean, we just had that conversation the other day um, with, oh God, I can't remember her name, but I covered her, but her husband was still fine with her going out and doing her thing. Yes. Yep. Yep. Uh, Dr. Sue. Dr. Sue. That's Dr. right. Dr. Sue. All right. So um, Yuri actually had a twin named Peter and an older brother, Arthur. It was a family of five. Uh, they were actually relatively affluent, 
And she grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood, which is actually fairly uncommon. This is 1920s. She attended a Presbyterian church and taught Sunday school. So, like, she was living a relatively normal middle-class life. Yeah. Which is, like I said, kind of unusual for immigrants. Honestly, that's the dream, to have such a normal life. And not just to have a normal life, but to be allowed to have a normal life. You don't have to fight for anything. Right. You, You don't have to... Stand up for the oppressed. You can just live your life in peace. And that's what everyone wants. Everyone wants to live in really Th- boring times. That is times. truly the American dream. Yeah, to just be left the fuck alone. Just get your, your own shit. Uh, so um, in addition to teaching Sunday school, she um, did get to attend high school where she did graduate. She was actually the first female student body officer for the school. And she wrote for the school newspaper, played on the tennis team. So she was like... She was very active in high school. Like, she was out there and getting shit done. You know how I'm imagining her? She's that girl in school. We all went to school with this person who is intelligent. They're active. They're involved. They're accomplished. And they're so nice. And they're just a great person. They're a great person. And so you're like, I really wish I could hate you. But I fucking can't. Like, I used to work with a woman. I can actually, like, picture the person from my graduating (laughs) class that you're talking about. Yeah, I actually used to work with a woman. Uh, She was stunning, athletic, um, just like an all around amazing person. And like, I was joking with someone one day. I was like, you think she's like a closet racist because right. no one is that great. You're like, I hate you, but I also love you. Cause but you're also please never leave me because you're right. the best. <laughs> so she also got to go on to graduate, um, from junior college where she studied English journalism, art and art. She graduated in 1941. Did you say she studied English journalism, art, and art? <laughs> and graduate. I might have said art twice, but it was English journalism and art. She was really into art. She just really liked art, guys. Yeah. She, she, it was so nice you say it twice. <laughs> yeah. So 1941. Uh-oh. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, I need to repeat that because Emily didn't react the first time I said it. Don't you fucking do this to me. So her life, along with many other people's lives, changed forever on December 7th, 1941 when the Japanese empire bombed Pearl Harbor. You know, it's, I was almost going to say funny. It's not funny, but this is not interesting. Weird. Um, so I, for my, for Christmas, I think it was, I got my mom, the book, the code girls, uh, and it's about female code breakers during world war two. And the whole thing was, uh, she could read it and then I could listen to it and then we could talk about it. So it wasn't just like, hey, I think you'll find this interesting. It was, hey, we can bond over this. Have you actually done it? Well, here's the thing. She didn't tell me she read it. So I saw her on Mother's Day and I was like, and she's I like, love your mother. oh, by the way, I already read Code Girls. And I'm like, were, were you ever going to tell me? Right, you're like, so, I'll get on listening to it, mom. Yeah, so I start actually started listening to it today and it opens up with the attack on Pearl Harbor. So I'm like, I was literally just here mentally, you bitch. Well, this is the story I mentioned last week that I'm like, it gets real dark and then it kind of gets better and then stuff. It gets weird. And then it gets weird, yeah. Oh, no. It's this story. Um. Anyway, so I, I didn't get the exact timeline, but I think it was within like a day of the attack, she was returning home from church. And when she got there, there were FBI agents at her house and they were like, hey, do you know where your dad is? And she was like... Yeah, he's in the back room. Like he's he's really sick. Like he just got home like from the hospital the other day, but he he's in the back room and they're like, "Okay, can can we see him?" And so she like brought him back there and they arrested him and took him away. What the f- 
The next day, with within like a, a day or two. Okay, you know what's they crazy were about that? Real quick about they it. They literally declared war the day after. Like I think it was December eighth, and like they're immediately rounding people up. Uh, first, from what I read, it was like within, yeah, a day or two, they were rounding up first generation Japanese. It's not quite to the, like, sending them to camps yet, but they were, like, arresting, arresting them. Arresting them still. Oh, my yeah, God. Was, yeah. So her dad was arrested even though he was in poor health. The FBI was suspicious of her father because there were photographs of Japanese naval ships in their home, as well as he was a friend with the Japanese ambassador, Kichi Saburo Namura. Here's the thing, though. Dad's... Like one of three things. No, sorry. One of four things. Hunting, fishing, golf, and boats. Yeah. He's a boat dad. Okay. (laughs) Like you're allowed to like boats without being considered a fucking traitor. And I feel like from Japan, like from Japan, that like, like liking boats is a, like a thing. They're very sea oriented. (laughs) They're surrounded by the shit. So her father was detained essentially for six weeks. Part of that, he was sent to a hospital because his health was deteriorating. Okay. And I read an interview that Yuri talks about, and she's like, we as the children weren't allowed to go see our father, but my mother was able to go see him. And apparently, like, when the mom saw him, because they sent him to, um, like, a military hospital, and the mom was like, no, like, can he get a private room? Because it was all of these men coming back either from the attack on Pearl Harbor. Like, so like people did not like, like the fact that there was a Japanese guy in their oh, hospital. They were like everybody else was white. It. Yeah. And it was like, oh. she was just like, can he just get some medicine and go back to jail, please? Because at least in jail, he had his own room. That is so sad. It was bad. And like, so when when. When you were talking about the fast turnaround, there was already a lot of building like anti-Asian American sentiment, you know, towards Just the, from Japanese, the war in general, Chinese. Yeah. Well, it like since day one, like the what was it? The Chinese Exclusion Act was like yeah. 1852 or something. We've talked about how our country doesn't do well when new populations move into it. Yeah, we're assholes, and I will be the first to admit that. But the quick turnaround, I'm like. I feel like we were just looking for an excuse. I feel like we already I, had those lists ready. I, exactly. I feel like the the government was just like looking for a reason. And FDR, in a lot of ways, was oh, a great president. Yeah, but this out, was worry. probably one of the worst things he ever did. And I will say Eleanor Roosevelt was super pissed off at oh, him. Yeah. She's he like, was, this is why I don't sleep was, with you, she you was fucker. So mad. But she told him, she's like, don't fucking do this. And he's like, but I'm going to do it. He's and like, but like, I have to. And she's like, no, you don't. You fucking, you literally don't. Right. You don't have to commit like crimes against humanity. I need more wine. I'm worked up. You're like not even a page in. I'm fucking done. Two paragraphs in. So her her, husband, her father was detained for six weeks, like I said, and the detention only aggravated his health problems. He was released on January 20th, 1942. And by that time, he was too sick to speak and he died the next day. You know why they released him? They knew he was oh, going to yeah, die. 100%. And they're, like, they're like, we don't want this happening in our custody. Yeah, we don't want him to die under our watch. He can die under your watch because then it's not our problem. Right. Fucking assholes. Very soon after her father's death, Franklin D. Roosevelt, the president of the United States at the time, issued order executive order 9066. This is the order that forced approximately 120,000 people of Japanese ancestor from the Pacific Coast 
mainly from the Pacific Coast because that's where a lot of them had settled. Yeah, because it's a lot quicker to go from Japan to California than from Japan to the other side of the goddamn world. So he issued an executive order to inter people of Japanese ancestry into camps. So America's having her own camps. They weren't as bad, but they were still pretty bad. It was still just a fucking nightmare. And all of those people, they lost their homes and their businesses. And when this ended, they didn't get that shit oh, back. No. It, I, no, we get into that. I'm sorry. I I know about this topic. And it's it, it's I'm terrible. Hot. It gets it's me hot. Terrible. I'm like, no, I hate it. And I'm mad and I'm aggravated. So Yuri, her mother and her brother. It doesn't say, I know was never able to find out if it was her twin or her other brother. But one of her brothers were evacuated because, of course, they didn't, you know, they weren't like, we're taking you prisoner. They're like, no, we're just relocating you. Yeah, it's for your own good. Just, just don't worry about um, it. So she was, they were moved to a converted horse stable in the Santa Anita Assembly Center. So they weren't even taken to, like, a camp right away. So they moved there for several months, and then they moved again to what was known as the War Relocation Authority Internment Camp in Arkansas. Yeah, all these camps were like in states where they had enough space to put giant camps of people. So, you know, God, southern states. He's got swaths of land, and they do not give a fuck about Right up here, we're like, this. no, you can't have our swaths of land. We have corn. We have and corn cows. and beans. Go away. But where will the cows go? <laughs> exactly. So they were moved to this internment camp where they would end up living for the next three years. Okay. Really quick recap. How old is she at this time? She's a child. No. No? This is 1942. She was born in 1921. So she's, okay, she's, so she's 21. In her 20s. So still super young. Her father has been arrested while he's deathly ill. And then died. And then died. And then they're being rounded up and they're sent to an internment camp. Yep. That's where we're at. What a nightmare. Yep. Like, when I was 21, I got to drink, and that was awesome. When right. she's 21, she gets arrested, and her Relocated. father dies. <laughs> she gets imprisoned by yeah, her own no, goddamn government. Well, and she was a United States citizen. Exactly. She was born here. Uh, yeah. But she didn't look like she was born here. So Neither terrible. do we. So probably one of the only good things for Yuri to come out of being in this internment camp was that she met her future husband, a man named Bill Kochiyama, who I, and I don't know if this term is racist in any way. I'm not intending it to be. This is literally the term that they use, but it's a Nisi soldier, which means a second generation. Like literally it is the words for two and generation in Japanese. Okay. So, so like, cause it was, it's like sen- sensei, Nisei, like, if you look, that's like all the, you know, it's first generation, second generation, third generation, fourth generation. And yeah, yeah, because Ichi, Ni, San. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So he was a second generation Japanese soldier working for the United States. They actually had quite a few of them in World War II. Um, one of the biggest was the 442nd Regiment, which was made up basically entirely of Japanese immigrant children. And it became the most decorated unit in U.S. military history. Let's just put them so in camps. So let's fine. just, like during World War II, like, so they're imprisoning their families and they're like, fuck you, we're still going to fight and we're going to fight well. Good God. Yeah. So it was, it was, so she, but she met him. He was a soldier. I don't know if he was also like interred there briefly. I was going to say, was he working there or was he just, was I didn't he a really, prisoner? I didn't really go into it. I, I'm guessing. Maybe it was when he wasn't off at war. Maybe he hadn't signed up to be a soldier yet or something. Okay. 
Okay. So she met him after they got out. So they got out in about 1945-ish. They married the, ne- the following year. Um, and then they moved to New York City. They had six children. Aww. And here's the sad part about this. And this is kind of what Emily was mentioning. They would end up living in public housing for the next 12 years of their life. Because, you know, you don't have a job for three years. You don't have a life for three years. Like, you can't get a job easily. You can't, you don't, you weren't making money, so you can't buy a house. Well, you've lost your money. Yeah, it's you've so lost bad. any property, business, or assets that you own. You're basically starting over. Like, you just popped up out of the womb. You have a social security number and nothing else. Yeah. And especially, I'm sure there's still, even towards the end of the war, a lot of anti-Japanese sentiment. Oh, yeah. So then let's just, you know, sprinkle some racism on top of the whole shit and sandwich. And this is for over 100,000 people. So it's like this yeah. influx of people coming out of these camps too. So tell me, when do the detrimental effects of something like that wear off? And when do we get to forget this ever happened? Oh, we'd have Probably to remember never. it happened first. Yeah, right. And it was public housing wherever they went. So they originally lived in New York. And then kind of when they were getting, so 12 years later from 1948 would be 1960. So they moved to Harlem. And that's kind of really when they got their own house. Basically, they moved to Harlem. And then they were, you know, they were put together enough to actually like be their own people finally. I love it because whenever I think of Harlem, I think of like, the center of black culture. And I just love like this Japanese couples. That's right. And there's six kids. (laughs) Um, So they moved to Harlem. They moved the whole family to Harlem and they joined the Harlem parents committee and the Congress for race equality, which is called core. I totally thought you were gonna say the Harlem Globetrotters. I'm like, okay, this did get weird. Yeah. No, we're not, we're not to the weird part yet. (laughs) Being part of this Congress for racial equality group, this core group, um, Yuri actually ended up meeting Malcolm X, who is an African-American activist for the people who don't know. See, I told you it gets weird. So she met Malcolm X. So besides being an African-American activist, he was also a very prominent member of Islam for the people who like don't know. Look him up. He did a bunch of shit. Yeah, he did. He converted at some point, didn't he? Yeah. I don't know as much about Malcolm X as I should. I know like the key points. That's about it. So in October 1963, There was a protest against the arrest of 600 minority construction workers in Brooklyn who had been protesting for jobs. The protest was run by Malcolm X and Yuri was like right there with him. So like she very much became very active in basically any cause against racism. I love her. I also love that she's just like chilling next to Malcolm X and I've never heard of her. I know. Oh, it gets, there's a moment later in my story that I'm like, Huh. How, 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 how? Like, how have we never heard of this woman? It remi- Actually, it reminds me, um, I'll, I'll, I'll look his name up, but uh, one of the most influential members of the civil rights movement in the 60s was a gay man. And he was like, if you see a picture of Martin Luther King Jr. standing with other people, he's, he's in, in like every single picture because he was like, Martin Luther King Jr.'s right-hand man. You know why you've never heard of him? And why I can't gay. remember his name? Because he's gay and he got buried. And like by his own people. Because yeah. they were like, ah, but this whole gay thing, we're not really into that. And you're not like the image we want. Uh, After this protest, Yuri joined Malcolm's um, Pan-Africanist, oh my gosh, Pan-Africanist Organization of Afro-American Unity. Just really quick. It's Bayard Rustin. So she, she joined the group that Malcolm X was like famous for creating. So this is the part where I was like, 
man, how have we never heard of this woman? And this is a little graphic. So if you don't really like graphic stuff and I won't put a picture up, but skip ahead a little bit. Ooh. So Yuri was good enough friends with Malcolm X that she was present at his assassination on February 21st, 1965 to the point where she was holding him in her arms as he was dying. And that is a famous picture that was on the cover of Life magazine. And no one knows who she is. And she was that close to him. I know more about the girl in the Kent State shooting photo than I do about this woman. Are you fucking serious? Also, that's my birthday, February 21st. (laughs) And now I'm now, well, here's the thing. Now I will always remember what day Malcolm X was assassinated. assassinated. Yep. Oh my God. Yeah. Yuri, honey. I know. Trauma. Yeah. So besides Malcolm X, she was also friends with a lot of other revolutionary nowadays leaders, um, including a man named Robert F. Williams, who actually gave Yuri a copy of Chairman Mao's Little Red Book. So Chairman Mao is, he's a famous communist Chinese leader. Like a lot of people know who he is. I know who he is. But he wrote, he wrote it. Is that like, is that like. A lot of people call it the little red book because it's, it's famously like bound in red leather and it has like the Chinese. Well, and then communist red. Okay. The full title of this book is quotations from chairman Mao Zedong. So like he actually named it after himself. Oh, Um, oh, he wrote the title. Yeah. Oh, he, okay. I mean, he wrote the book, but okay. it's not even really a book. It is 267 quotes, thoughts. I don't know, like little affirmations. Oh, so it's 267. They call them aphorisms. Was um, this his version of having a tape recorder? He's like, idea for a screenplay. I would, <laughs> I would like to think so, but no. But like, it was just like little things of like how he felt about like class struggles, correcting mistaken ideas. One of his famous remarks is that political power grows out of the barrel of a gun. So, like, it was basically just, like, his little book of things to live by, but it was, you know, basically a tiny communist manifesto. He's like, I'm going to make Quotes.com's job so easy for me. (laughs) So she read that, and she actually really agreed with some of his ideas. I told you it gets weird. Um, She also became a a mentor to the radical end of the Asian American movement that started becoming really big before or during and then immediately preceding the Vietnam War. Mm. Um, So she was really big into that. And she was kind of, like I said, more on the radical end. So she was like the more, you know, get out there and protest and, you know, maybe throw a Molotov cocktail and like, I'll see. I'll let people see us. At this point in her life, the government has essentially killed her father, imprisoned her and her family for three years, prevented her from having, you know, a a stable life for what, like 12 years after they got out. And her friend and, you know, fellow activist, she's held him as As he he was dying dying from being assassinated. I get why she's like, I'm fucking done Right. And no, she does we're get, not playing nice here. We're like, I'm not as, I'm not right. saying please. We're actually coming into like the good, the good part and what Yuri should probably be most known for okay. and still isn't. God damn. Um, so she became one of the biggest organizers of the East Coast Japanese Americans for redress and reparations. So basically for the, like they wanted people, you know, they wanted America and the government to pay for the fact that they imprisoned them. 
Yeah, that's, that's and like the made them, super short version of what reparations is. And made them lose all of their businesses, homes, and assets for, you know, years and years and right. So Yuri like strongly like went out and advocated for reparations for the government and a government apology. Like she's like, I want the government to officially apologize for the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. Yeah. And we want reparation for it. Acknowledge that that was fucked up and awful and a horrible way to treat your own goddamn citizens. Right. So she advocated it for like the whole world and she actually was a key member in bringing the commission of wartime relocation and internment of civilians, which is like a commission to New York city in particular. And that, that did happen by the way, Japanese Americans did eventually get reparation. Oh, thank God. Um, Yuri also founded the day of remembrance committee in New York, which I don't know if this is something they want to commemorate, but it's maybe commemorate. Isn't the best word. Because I don't know, like, to me, commemorate brings a positive connotation to something, but remembrance maybe, because this is a day to remember the day that Franklin D. Roosevelt authorized the Executive Order 9066, which uh, interred all the Japanese people. Okay, I, I, I see what you mean. Yeah, just kind of, well, and it's, here's the thing, like, I don't remember when I first learned about the Japanese internment, but I do not remember having a class on it. No. I don't remember I learning it was about like it in a school. Fo- see, I think I learned about it in school, but it was like, it was like, Here's World War II. Oh, oh, by the way, we incarcerated Japanese people. But here's what actually happened in World War II. Like, I feel like that's how I learned about I it. I think the most in-depth educate, formal education I got on the topic, I took a, a, a class on playwrights of color. So we I read. That, I think I took that class, too. Oh, it was so much fun. Our professor was the fucking best. But we uh, read plays from playwrights mm-hmm. of color and examined, you know, their struggles throughout periods of time. And when we got to... Uh, Asian American playwrights, we talked about the Japanese internment and we read a play on it and we like talked in depth about like, hey, here's what happened and here were the consequences and here's how fucked up it was. I'm like, I feel like you're the first educational professional who's really talked to me about this and I haven't had to just like Google it on my own. Right. So the idea of bringing, hey, this is the day that FDR said that we're all not people anymore. Right. Like, that fuck us. We're, we're not worthy of the same rights as every other American citizen. Like, I do think it bears remembering. I just don't know if commemorate is the word I would use. Yeah. I, I, Apparently it is the word I use, but. I, I get what you mean. Like, I think commemorative coin, although they yeah. have commemorative coins for 9-11. So. I know. That's why I'm like, I don't know. They're just, I feel like there should be a different word. Anyways. So President Ronald Reagan would go on to sign the Civil Liberties Act in 1988. Uh, just, you know, that's 43 years after Yuri would have been released from the internment camp, which the Civil Liberties Act, among other things, awarded each Japanese American internment survivor $20,000. Okay. I did not research into if they got a public apology, but I'm, I I think they did, but I don't know 100%. I know. Have. It's literally the easiest part of this. You'd be like... That was fucked, guys. I'm so sorry. And here's the thing. As the president of the United States, 40 years later, it wasn't on you. You can just apologize for all the other assholes that came before you. (laughs) Like, come on. Right, exactly. So Yuri would use this victory of reparations for the Japanese American to go on to advocate for uh, reparations for African Americans as well, for their treatment. I love how intersectional she is with her activism. Um, I don't know what happened with that. I don't think it happened, knowing just the state of climates now. And 
I know there have been some reparations for African Americans whose ancestors were enslaved, but I feel like it's more of a uh, informal, it's more of like a token thing. It's like a scattershot right. kind of thing. Like, and and I know there was for Indigenous peoples. They were they had like some reparation thing. Okay, but yeah, our government's really bad at being like my bad, y'all. Oh God, they don't want to give anyone money, especially if it's <sighs> unless, you know, they unless did it's a global bad. pandemic. Even so that, then, that's because they're no. They only give money to people when they need to look good. Yeah. Um. Anyways, and then they bitch about it. Yeah, the whole exactly. Time. Yuri would also go on to be very active in oppo- opposing profiling bigotry against really basically all races. She participated in stuff for Muslims, Middle Easterners, uh, South Asians, um, and other basically any experience that she viewed similar to what happened to the Japanese Americans during World War II. She was like, nah, this is not like we're never going to let it get that bad again. You know, there's that uh, there's that quote, and I'm paraphrasing because I can't remember it exactly, but it was like a threat to equality for some is a threat to equality for all. And she is taking that so seriously. She's like, this happened to me and it has happened to you and you and you, and it will, it will keep happening. Like this isn't just a me problem. Ours got real bad. And I want to make sure that doesn't, it never gets that bad for anyone else ever again. Yeah. Well, I mean, she's acknowledging the other sins of the government against certain groups of people like Yuri, honey, you were just doing everything. So Yuri has been described as a woman of quote unquote complicated political beliefs and at times contradictory views. We'll get into that a little bit. But she really managed to combine both support for racial integration and separation at the same time. It was kind of interesting. Like she was like, everyone should be treated equal, but every race should maybe kind of just like be them their own group kind of a thing. It was it's weird. We'll get onto it. Okay. So she was she would go on in her more adult life to support the Peruvian Maoist guerrilla group known as the Shining Path. So the, these were just a, a communist revolutionary party in Peru that wanted to overthrow the government because that's what revolutionaries do, apparently. So she joined a delegation that actually went by, to Peru by that was organized by the American Maoist group, like communist group. Ah, uh, okay. So she went to Peru... And, like, she helped garner support and, like, tried to, you know, recruit people to this guerrilla group known as the Shining Path. And their leader was actually, like, imprisoned. So she was, like, trying to, like, you know, petition for him to get out and all this stuff. And she she said, quote, the more I read, the more I completely support the revolution in Peru. I'm pretty sure they didn't win. I don't know. I don't know a lot about Peruvian history. I was going to say, I've heard of the Shining Path. I don't know enough to, like, make a comment, but... But just knowing how, like, anti-communist the rest of the world is, I can just... Well, I feel like they probably didn't win. And at this time, okay, Ronald Reagan was president. This was the 80s. This was after we found out... No, was it? Was this when we found out about everything, like, Stalin was doing with the gulags and all that? I think it's after that. Okay, because the 80s was when the Berlin Wall fell. I, I I feel like I have all these, like, important points in history, and I'm like, how do I line them up to make sense? I know. It's not but, always easy. But, you know, it was like the Russians or the Soviets were our allies in World War II, and then there was the Cold War, and we didn't know everything that was going down in the no, Soviet Union. No, we really didn't. It was, no, it was the Iron Curtain. 
Uh, anyways, so I'm going to backtrack a little because apparently my notes got out of order. That's okay, because uh, clearly I don't know where I am in time or history anyway. <laughs> Going back 20 years, in 1968, so this was still when she was working with a lot of the black nationalist groups, and this is really where the whole separate but equal thing for her comes into play. So she was one of the very, very few non-blacks invited to join what was known as the Republic of New Africa which was this group that advocated for the establishment of a separate black nation within the Southern United States. So basically they were like, you know, give us a few States and we'll just be our own little nation here in the corner. Well, that's like, I think it was after slavery was abolished. There were actually groups of freed slaves who went back to Africa. They're like, fuck this shit. This is not that. This is... No, 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 but it it feels like the same sentiment where it's just kind of like, hey, we didn't ask for this, so, like, just leave us alone, you know? So during her time with this group, she very strongly sided with them, and more specifically, she sided with the faction that very strongly wanted to separate from the United States and make their own black nation. And that doing that, separating themselves from the rest of the nation, becoming their own black nation was way more important than the struggle for civil rights that was happening in the Northern cities. I get where she's coming from. I disagree. Yeah. And this is what I'm saying. Like she had a very together, but separate mindset during some of her life. What I will say is kind of like what we've already talked about. Her father has been killed because of the government. She's been imprisoned by the government. Her life has been irrevocably altered because of the government. I I understand why she would have such a, I don't want anything to do with you guys anymore. Just like, let us have our own space. You go fuck off. It's just really interesting because I'm like, would they let her husband and like her kids come? Oh, they weren't invited? I don't know, because she she is one of the very few non-black people. There was no people. plus one. So I'm like, I don't, like, I don't know. Like, because if they're not part of the nation, like, I would assume they'd let them come with. But yeah, then, like, I don't know. It'd been very, very interesting. You know what happened. I think is so sad about that, though? It's, um, it feels like this complete... Uh, hopelessness like there's no way we can get the government to treat us equally there's no way we can be recognized as equal citizens by the government we've suffered our parents our grandparents we've all suffered and like I'm done trying to like make you be nice to me I'm just gonna do my own thing and if you could just leave me alone and like it's really sad oh it is it, it it can get to that point where it's like I, I'm done trying. Well, like, you treat me so badly, I'm done. It makes a lot of sense that this very much came out of, like, the southern states because that is that is where it was wor- the worst for African Americans. Yep. Um, and it was when she joined the RNA or the Republic of New Africa, that's when she dropped her quote-unquote, I'm, I'm really uncomfortable saying this, no, slave name, that's what they called it. Oh, Mary. Yeah. Okay. And that's how she phrased it, which is the only reason I'm saying that because I feel like her calling it that is not appropriate. So I feel very uncomfortable saying it. Because her own parents named gave her, her that, that name. Yeah. I know. And it's, and I mean, I get it because they probably named her that because of assimilation, blah, 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 blah. It, it was but an Americanized it name. It just, eh. So, this, but it's, yeah, it's when she dropped Mary and started going only by Yuri. I feel like, okay, I just want to say really quick, I feel like we're coming off as a little judgy. 
And it's more that, like, especially for me, because I've never heard this story, I'm trying to process my feelings about it. Oh, yeah. That being said, I will never be able to relate to what this woman went through and her feelings about it. It seems like she felt very close to the black civil rights movement of that right. time. And I'm not saying like and she was, people dropping what a, what they're calling their slave name. is. No, 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 I'm no. just saying like for me it feels like she as a Japanese American woman who was given that name by her parents like that's what makes it uncomfortable for me for her calling it a slave name. No, no, no. And, I, and I totally get that. And what I'm saying is that if we're coming off as judgy it's more that we're trying to process it through our own experiences. I'm not saying she like here's the thing I'm a white woman I can't say if that's appropriate or not like I'm not the person that would be offensive to but I also understand kind of where she's coming from because like you said I'm sure her parents named her Mary because it was Americanized and it definitely would not be what she was named if there was a more welcoming climate to Japanese and Asian Americans so also, I will say, like, I feel like people were probably cool with it. Like, she was invited to be. Oh part yeah, of the, I mean, yeah, but I'm this just saying, new like, African uh, nation, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. So, but also this idea of trying to uh, get back to your cultural roots and to discover who you are in the face of such horrific racism and trying to, you know, find your identity while coping with these issues. I understand what she's doing with that and what she's trying to do. Right. So Yuri would go on to convert secretly to Sunni Islam and would then begin traveling to the Sankor Mosque within Greenhaven Prison in New York to study and worship with Imam Razu Suleiman, or Suleiman, who was like a really big Islam leader that had gotten arrested for activism. Okay, I was like, why was he in prison? <laughs> reasons. I, I'm, I'm like, was it like reasons or was it like murder reasons? No, it was like, <laughs> I'm like it was kind of like, I think Malcolm X went to jail yeah, for a while. Yeah, and Mar- Martin like Luther King J- And that's why I'm like, okay, before I start saying yay or nay, why is he in prison? Is it activism or is it something like, But part of me does wonder if she did it secretly because of, like, these other groups she was a part of. Like, you know, because the Communist Party is, you know, they're big and they're, like, really well tied. So I wonder if she, like, converted secretly to, like, not piss off these other organizations that she was a part of. So during all of this activism, Yuri was also just doing, like, smaller things within her community, such as teaching English to immigrant students, volunteering at soup kitchens and homeless shelters, there was a 2001 TV series called Cool Women that Yuri was on, and she stated, quote, the legacy I would like to leave is that people try to build bridges and not walls. That's a beautiful quote, but also Cool Women is the laziest name for a show I have ever heard in my life. It's also very early 2000s. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 2001. I'm like, yeah, that's... It's, it's very 2000s, and it's very lazy. Like, there was just... Well, they're women and they're cool. So it's like, it's like the same person who named Hot Pockets. Well, it's a pocket and it's, it's hot. So this is right. Call it like hot it's, a, it's a pocket of meat and cheese and it's, and it's, it's hot. hot. You put it in the microwave and it's hot. Like, are you high? Right. It's, it's just a hot pocket. Okay. We're, we're just going to put it on there, you know, like for mock ups as a placeholder and we'll change it later. And Caliente pocket. I know, that's all I can <laughs> think Jim of. Fucking Jim Gaffigan. Oh, my God. 
So Yuri also founded and sustained a group that was called the David Wong Support Committee. I tried to look up who David Wong was and all it came up for him. And I just rechecked now was a cracked.com humor writer. And so I don't think that's who it was. But he was so a baby. It was David Wong support. I mean, this is in the early 2000s. It was a fort. This committee did a 14 year battle to exonerate David Wong of a murder of a fellow inmate. Couldn't find the guy. Don't know why he was in prison. Or if he did or did not murder no, the he, inmate they, or what that... they successfully exonerated him and they proved he didn't do it. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> um, and she, But she was super involved in this. She wrote letters, fundraise, and actually visited this guy in prison. And I like I looked because I'm like, I want to know more about like why she did this. And like, I assume he was also an activist, but like literally all I could find was some guy from crack.com. So I don't know. Maybe she rescued the guy from crack.com. David Wong from crack.com. If this is you, please email well, us. Apparently that's like somebody's pen name at crack.com. His actual name was like Jim or something. So Jim. I don't, I don't know. Anyways, um, throughout her life, she supported political prisoners. Again, that's the, and that's why I'm like, he must've been some sort of like, yeah, but she also would, help victims of what she believed to be FBI oppression, which I probably 100% agree with her, probably was. Um, she worked on behalf of people like uh, Mamia Abul-Jamal, who was an activ- African-American activist who was sentenced to death for a murder of a police officer. Don't know what happened to that. <laughs> there are so many loose ends in this story, I know. and it's stressing me um, out. She was also a friend and supporter of Asada Shakur, who was another activist and a member of the Black Liberation Army, who was also accused of murder, but escaped escaped from the prison he was in and fled to Cuba. Don't know if that makes it better or worse. But this that was a woman. Asada Shakur, Shakur is a woman. And Yuri really viewed her as like a female Malcolm X. Malcolm X. So like she 100% was like, I don't know if she did it, but I'm like Yuri felt that if she did, there was a, like a good reason behind right, it. She wasn't just going around killing people. It was... Um... Exactly. Yeah. She also she also supported and helped a, a woman named Mar- Marilyn Buck, who was a feminist poet and help Asada escape prison. So I wish it was really that easy to get out of prison, man. I mean, maybe in the 1980s it was. <sighs> I don't know. Yuri would also go on the, in before the 2000s. My story jumps around a lot because yeah. like I kind of did it by like group almost. So in the, in this 1977, she rejoined up with a group of or not rejoined. This time it was Puerto Ricans before it was Peruvians. This group, and I don't remember this because I wasn't alive yet, but I feel like I again this may have been a footnote in history. This group of Puerto Ricans took over the Statue of Liberty because that's a thing you can do because it's an island, and they did it to draw attention to Puerto Rico's movement for independence because they weren't independent yet that's in 1977. Right. I'm going to sound really ignorant, and I blame the education system. Are they independent now? Yes. Okay. And they're a territory of the United States, correct? Like, we Are don't let they? them vote? Yes, they're they're a U.S. territory. Okay. Along with other, like, most of the Caribbean islands. Okay. That's why I thought. Because recently, uh, they I, I think they were, again, advocating to get rights they, to yeah, vote they, in the, they in the U.S. elections. They petitioned to be a state. And that's right. We were like, no. Okay. Again, I will say, I remember being a little kid and talking about like 
how the stars on the flag changed as we got states. And like being a kid growing up in the 90s with just 50 states and that being the way you've always understood it, the idea of getting a new state was like, whoa, what? And the teacher was like, yeah, if we get another new state, it'll probably be Puerto Rico. And I'm 30 years old. It was like Puerto Rico or like Cuba, I think is another one of our territories. No. No. Cuba's an entirely different country and we won't smoke their cigars. (laughs) They won't let us. The government won't let us. (laughs) Because we, okay, we own five territories. San Juan, Puerto Rico, America, Samoa, Guam, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Oh, I did not know about Guam. I don't know why I thought Cuba was Guam. Guam. Um, they do sound the same. <laughs> no, no, I was just saying Guam because I like that. I like that name. Um, um, anyways, it sound like gum. It makes me think of gum. <laughs> so they took over the Statue of Liberty not only to draw attention to the um, Puerto Rican independence movement, but they also wanted to release four Puerto Rican nationalists that had been convicted of attempted murder, who had opened fired on the House of Representatives. Oh shit. Uh like what? Like 30 years prior, it was in the 1950s, four Puerto Rican nationalists opened fired on the House of Representatives. They okay. didn't kill anyone. I will say I don't know why I'm surprised because January 6th just happened, you guys. Right. I don't know why I'm like, "What?" Um so they they occupied the Statue of Liberty for 9 hours before giving up peacefully when the when the police like surrounded the island. You know what it kind of reminds me of uh when a group of indigenous people took over Alcatraz. Yep. Yeah, because they, they were protesting like broken treaties or yep. something, and they actually created kind of this little self-sustained community for it a was period really of cool. time. You can still see a lot of the graffiti from that period of time if you go visit there. Which um, I will make a side note that President Jimmy Carter, who is known for almost nothing. I was going to say no one liked him, even um, though he seems like he, such a nice dude. He did go on to pardon the four... Puerto Rican nationalists. Wow. Two years later. So, you know. Uh, that dude's just building houses for Habitat for Humanity now. Yuri also supported Yukikamura, who was a member of the Japanese Red Army and was arrested in the Schiefel Airport in Amsterdam when he was found carrying a bomb in his luggage. And he was subsequently convicted of planning to bomb a U.S. Navy recruitment office in the Veterans Administration building Yuri, however, felt that his 30-year sentence was mo- was motivated not by the fact that he was carrying a bomb onto a plane, but that he was a political activist. I told you it gets weird. I'm going to say, I don't know if and I agree this with is, that. This is one of those things that she did some really great things for, like, Japanese reparations and stuff, but I don't want to hide the fact that she was kind of also on the weird side of history and probably sided with some people I feel like she shouldn't have. I was going to say warts and all. That's what we do on this show. We we do a lot of like, yeah, girl power stuff, but if a woman fucked okay. up, we're going to say is, it. This to me is the worst one. Oh no. <laughs> I literally listed it under controversy. So this comes after September 11th, 2001. Oh. Yuri stated, so this is what she stated after our response to September 11th. I mean, we declared war because someone attacked us. Uh, anyway, she said, quote, the goal of the war on terror is more than just getting oil and fuel. The United States is intent on taking over the world. And it's important we all understand that the main terrorist and the main enemy of the world's people is the U.S. government. 
I will say I do remember at that time being super like, I don't want to go to war. Like, come on, guys, let's all just. I'm still chill. like that. I'm like, can everyone just yeah. calm down? I don't want there to be a third world war. You know, you know, what's interesting about that. What she just said does not sound that outlandish nowadays. Like it, it, it does get worse. OK, I, I'm just going to shut the fuck up. <laughs> I'm, I'm on a worse. list. I guess I should say this. It's get worse. It gets worse for me being on the American side of things. I cannot speak for anyone listening internationally especially for the people in the middle east yeah but she was in interviewed in 2003 and she said the following quote i consider osama bin laden as one of the people that i admire to me he is in the category of malcolm x che Guevara, patricia lamuba fidel castro and i think islam for bin laden america's greed aggressiveness and self-righteous arrogance must be stopped war and weaponry must be abolished how the fuck did murdering a bunch of people accomplish that? Yeah, I, was say, I kind of agree with that last sentence. I don't really agree with the rest of it. Well, it, it's interesting because some of the people she named there, at least the people I recognize, are at... Like Che Guevara? Like, he's not known for good things. I was going to say, at best, controversial. Fidel, Fidel Castro. Fidel Castro. Hey, look, Cuba. Cuba came back into it. Um, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We feel the same. We're just like, mm, I'm having a lot of feelings. I'm having a lot of feelings. Yeah. You know what? Here's the thing, though. I think we figured out why we've never heard of this woman. Yeah. Um, probably. Also, I think it is really important, though, to understand that historical figures are very complex. And I feel like there's been this movement, especially in the last few years, to acknowledge the sins of particularly our forefathers. Like, right, like George Washington, great for the time, slave owner, boo, you know? Like people can be, or people can have done great things with not always being the greatest people. Yeah, uh, Winston Churchill, great for the time, horrible, like not a great person in <laughs> general. First time he was prime minister during the war, Great. Second time, not so great. They kicked him out because he just wanted to keep warring it yeah, up. It was, he loved war. It was bad. Um, and I think that's something important about this podcast, that we don't shy away from the controversial bits, the warts, whatever you call it, because people are complicated. People are full of contradictions. People are complex. I'm going to say the best. People are people. Yeah, they're we're just all, like me and you. Like we're, we're all crazy fucked up. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And again, I'm not excusing or honoring, you know, some parts that people might be like, whoa, what the fuck? I just think we need to take an honest look at other people, acknowledge no one's a goddamn saint. Exactly. Even the saints. Yeah. Right. Except Ruth Kogerberg. She's a legit saint. Um so in, <laughs> in 2005, Yuri was um one of a thousand women that were collectively nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize in a project known as 1,000 Women for the Nobel Peace Prize 2005. Okay, I love their mission statement is their is title. There, it, you know, it's simple and easy to understand. If you um, have questions, you weren't listening. I don't think that that <laughs> one, I don't remember hearing about that being a thing. Um, in 2010, she received an honorary doctorate from California State. Yay. On June 6, 2014, she's still alive at this point. Oh! No, in my story. Oh, okay. Not now. <laughs> Um, the White House would go, would honor Yuri on its website, just its website, because good job, White House. Um, but they said, quote, Yuri dedicated her life to the pursuit of social justice, not only for the Asian American and Pacific Islander community, but for all communities of color. And that is 100% true. 
Yes. In 2014, she also um, got from the Smithsonian Asian Pacific American Center. Um, they actually curated a digital exhibition basically as a tribute to her called Folk Hero, Remembering Yuri Kochiyama Through Grassroots Art. Yuri, That's really cool. Yeah. Yuri did die in 2014 um, on June 1st at the age of 93 in Berkeley, California. That is like oh yeah, four days from now. Yeah. In 2019, or sorry, 2016. I read that backwards. They, um... The U.S. Google Doodle. They, I like that they had to specify that it was U.S. Google, and I'll I'll get to why they had to specify that it was the U.S. Google Doodle. Okay. Um, but they honored the 95th anniversary of her birthday, which was received mixed. It had a very mixed response. Like some people were like, "Yeah, she did great things," and other people were like. She was a crazy activist. Like, why are you celebrating her? To the yep. point where a Republican senator from Pennsylvania named Pat Toomey called for a public apology from Google. Google did not apologize. Google was like, <laughs> nah. I did put in something from, so I was reading like about how people felt about this Google article because I read I read that and I'm like, wait, there was a controversy about a Google doodle? Good God. Because it's literally just like this woman standing there like, it's like to me, it's nothing controversial, but she she is a very controversial person, I guess. Yeah. So a Japanese American writer named Alyssa Winnens, this is what she wrote in her article, kind of defending the Yuri. Yeah. Okay. She said, so this is all just one long quote. When I was in my early twenties and being a good Asian American, meaning I attended meetings at college, I met Kochiyama, maybe half a dozen times or so. She did work with Malcolm X, he died in her arms, and well into her old age, she continued to fight for people of color. She held closely to the causes of Malcolm X, fought for later in his life, a focus on human rights, not just black rights. She lived in a Japanese internment camp during World War II, so she knew something about that. Kochiyama was a voice for people who looked like me, which is still unusual, and that's what makes Google's choice notable. Not that she was a radical, whatever that word means. I think that's totally valid. Right? Like, I, I found that and I was like, this whole quote's going in my story because, like, it really shows, like, yeah, she might have been a radical to some people, but she did a lot of good things. Right. Well, and I the, I think the thing that keeps sticking with me is the, the Osama bin Laden quote. Um, and I, it, I think it's because I was 10 years old when September 11th happened and I lived through that like swell of nationalism that we are still feeling today that is still affecting us. And literally you like, it's going to be a long time before you can be forgiven for a quote like that. I feel like by the general public, right. You know? And so that alone, I feel like is enough for people to demonize her and I get that, uh, but like I said, she was a complicated person. She did a lot of good things. Um, I think it's also important to understand kind of where she's coming from right. with a lot of her sentiments and positions, you know? Yeah. I'm glad you're covering her. She's she's tearing me in all these different directions, but that's a good thing. Right. I'm delightfully uncomfortable. Uh, here you go. Um, so Yuri was honored in a public art project commissioned, uh, commissioned in downtown Grand Rapids, Michigan, 
in 2019 for Women's History Month and International Women's Rights. It included Yuri as well as like a bunch of other illustrations by different artists of women and the portrait they chose. And I'll put a picture up and I'll show Emily quick. Um, but it's from a book called Rad American Women A to Z and Yuri is Y. Oh, I see. That's cool. And that, that's a similar picture to the one that's in the Google Doodle too, actually. Okay. So, and then obviously like the legacy, her legacy is very complicated as shown by the, the controversy over a freaking Google Doodle. But I mean, she really paved the way for, you know, semi bridging of gaps that came from World War II to the Japanese American, you know, group and maybe not healing of wounds, but like I said, like that olive branch of like, we're sorry, let, let's start trying to heal the wounds. It sounds to me like she was trying to hold the U.S. government accountable for their sins and to achieve that acknowledgement. Because if the government that you were living under refuses to acknowledge their sins against you, how can you trust them? Right. How can you feel like a full-blood citizen with the same rights as everyone else when you know that whenever they feel like it, they can kind of just wreck your life? Right. Well, and I think that's why she campaigned so hard for, like, other people of color, too, is that she was like, you know, I, I finally got to the government to recognize what they did to us was terrible. Now they need to realize they're doing it to other people, too. Yeah, th this isn't just, oh, we fucked up one time. It's like, no, you're no, fucking, you're fucking up, up, up all the time. <laughs> so, Emily, is your whining any happier? It's definitely a lot more mellow in comparison. All right, let's get into it. All right, so today I am covering Charlotte Cushman. I like that last She's name. the breeches bitch. <laughs> yeah. I like that you pre-come up with what their title name's going to be. Well, because I have to title the episode. And sometimes you don't always give me something in your story. And God, I have to reach. So I'm like, I'm going to make I'll it try, easy I'll on try my to side. Think, I'll try to think of something. So Charlotte Cushman was born on July 23rd, 1816. So we're going a little further back. Uh, oh. In Boston, Massachusetts. Real quick, I was listening to a couple of British podcasters, and they were covering a story that took place in Massachusetts. Listening to them try to pronounce it was the funniest thing ever. Not because I'm like, how do you not know? But because I never realized how hard how it is. fucking insane that word looks. Yeah, It is the goddamn craziest thing. I'm like, oh my God, that word is super fucked up. How can anyone pronounce anything? <laughs> so... Uh, she was part of an exclusive group of Americans who could trace their lineage back to the earliest colonizers in the United States. Mm, That's cool. Curl that little mustache. So the Mayflower voyage was actually organized in part by her great, great, great something or other, hmm. Robert Cushman. Uh, Charlotte's ancestors actually came over to the United States on the fortune in 1621, just a year after the notorious Mayflower voyage. Infamous, depending on who you ask. Yeah. Apparently, Robert Cushman gave the first sermon in America. Way to go, buddy. So I remember back in Catholic school, uh, we would bitch about having to go to church because like every Friday morning we would have yep. to go to church. And then the worst part of it was that your parents would then drag you to church on Sunday because oh, yeah. they you said- you still had to go twice. They said Friday mass didn't count. And I'm like, then why the fuck am I going? Yep. And no one had an answer for it. It was nope. fucking stupid. But anyway, we would bitch about going to church and the nuns would tell us about like the pilgrim. Oh, really? 
days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Way back in the day and how they would have sermons and services that lasted like eight hours. See, I don't think our nuns ever brought that up. It was insane. Oh, yeah. And that's exactly how I imagined the first Christian sermon in America. And there was probably a lot of talk of hellfire, too. Like, oh, yeah, hellfire brimstone. Well, you have to like, spice it up to keep people's attention. It's so oh, no, boring. I, there's all there's like 12 people in the back that are just like. And then instead of slamming a like, hey, book hey. on your pew, he just says, you're going to hell. You're going to hell. You're going to hell. We're but yeah, all lighting on fire. That's exactly why I'm imagining like Robert Cushman. Did. He basically had the first psychotic rant about how we're all going to hell. And everyone's yeah. just like. Is this a sermon? Let's just say it is. I'm, I'm, I'm like deeply embarrassed for him. I'm an empath, and I'm feeling yeah. very embarrassed I'm for just him. Very right now. embarrassed. So we're just gonna call it a sermon. Yeah, that way, in fine. the future, people will never know what he did. Yeah, save save his reputation. So anyway, <laughs> this isn't about him. <laughs> Moving on. Charlotte's father, Elkanah. Oh, yeah. I like that name. We need to bring that one yeah. back. Uh, he had been born into poverty. Apparently all that sweet sermon money just had dried up by now. Uh, but he all donated to the church. Emily. Yes. Uh, but he did manage to find his fortune, uh, as a West Indian merchant. And I assume West Indian, like, like the West Indies, there's a lot of trading and shit going on. Yeah, like, wasn't Pirates there actually, like, there. I was gonna say, wasn't it there? Like, wasn't the West there actually Indian the West trading India company. trading company? Yes. I, I didn't this get into is, uh, what is. my knowledge from Pirates of the Caribbean. I was going to say, I'm just like, Jack Sparrow was there. <laughs> Will, you know. Will was there. It was Orlando Bloom was also there. Kate, Kate Winslet? No. No. Um, Kira Knightley. Kira Knightley, Elizabeth Swan. There you go. <laughs> Not Kate Winslet. <laughs> Too much an, wine. This isn't a movie podcast, everyone. Shut up. Okay, so. I refuse to shut up. I assume that Charlotte had a mother, but I couldn't find any information about her. I assumed she emerged from some vaginal orifice or abdominal orifice. Who knows? Both are totally legit ways to give birth. Perhaps this is like a Disney story and the mom died in childbirth. She's Cinderella. We're done. Um, So as a child, Charlotte was kick ass. She was incredibly intelligent, athletic, and wasn't afraid to get her hands dirty. She was top of her class and was a footed Music so lessons. this is another girl like like Yuri that was that like pretty athletic smart yeah and okay. we all hate her we all hate love her <laughs> yeah I, I was honestly imagining Merida yep like you know she she's like athletic and tough Pocahontas. but she's like well oh my god yes <laughs> however life in the 1800s just wouldn't be complete Without a childhood, which is cut tragically short. This can be like one of my stories or something. And she dies. No. Somebody else dies. Someone else dies. Okay. Uh, at only 13 years old, Charlotte's father went broke and then died. Uh, rude. What? Leave. Oh, man. He was trying to escape his debt, so he just rudely up and died. <laughs> so this we're, left- we're on a dad dying train over yes. here. We're, we're like... Taking the power back from Disney and we're killing the dads. Yeah, we're like, no, you always gave them fathers. Screw fathers. <laughs> so this left Charlotte and the rest of the family, whoever the fuck they were, with nothing. Ooh, thanks, Dad. What a great way to start your teenage years. You're already bitchy and angsty and now you're broke right? as shit. Jeez. So this left the teenage Charlotte to step up as the breadwinner. Making it rain. Naturally... To earn money as a woman in the 1800s, she pursued a career in opera. 
as one does. I mean, she got music (laughs) lessons, so maybe. Yeah, like... I don't know. That was just I mean, like, like the most else, random thing. What else are you going to do in the 1800s when you're a woman? I guess you could have gotten married. I was going to say sex worker. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Which obviously shows what my past self totally would have done. And then someone would have been like, yeah, you could have been an opera singer. I would have been like, the fuck? I think probably the reason she thought that is because her family, yeah, well, like you said, like she was afforded music lessons. Yeah. Like I think had she maybe not had those. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I feel like that probably opened extra doors for her. Yep. So fortunately, she had an ally in her father's friend, John McKay, who was this like, like local industrial big shot. Creepy ally? No. Okay. We we can be cool with John. It's That's exactly okay. why I thought yeah, I, was I was like, like, you say ally, and I'm like, is he going to marry her? Because I read ahead. I was like, okay, how do I write about John? But he's okay. Okay. We're he's okay. an ally. Okay. So he's legit. It, it was John McKay that connected Charlotte with Mary Ann Patton, a Scotch opera singer, Ooh. when she visited Boston in 1834. So Mary Ann Patton was apparently impressed with Charlotte's opera skills because Charlotte joined her in two of her concerts. Wow. So, like, Charlotte's a teenager, and she's already, like, got the opera chops. Op chops. Hashtag op chops. No. No. That is not a thing. This put her on the radar of James G. Mater, who I'm imagining as a southern truck from Cars. But he was actually Mm -hmm. a musical director who took Charlotte under his wing and helped her refine her operatic ability. Charlotte made her first professional appearance as Countess Almaviva in The Marriage of Figaro, which is the straight-to-video sequel of Pinocchio, where Figaro finally marries Cleo the Fish. That was a perfectly timed dog bark. I don't know if they're going to be able to hear that, but she, Emily said it and then looked at me and then the dog bark. The dog's like, bullshit. No, I think. So I, I have a little background on this opera because naturally I had to look it up because I was like, what if it was the straight to video sequel? Um, so it's a comedy composed by Mozart and it. I, is actually a sequel, uh, but it's a sequel to the Barber of Seville yeah, that we so all it's know the from Looney Tunes. The, the Barber, Barber of Seville, because I just watched the Barber of Seville pre-pandemic. Like, Shut I, I up, went and, really? Yeah, it was. It's a really good opera. My my ex was in it, and it's really really good. And that's where like you get the Figaro, Figaro, Figaro. Like that's what it's from. Yeah. And so yeah, this is like the follow up. Wasn't that in Looney Tunes? I have no idea. All of my classical music knowledge comes from Looney Tunes. I, I, I mean, I'm, I think not. like part of it was. I'm pretty sure they didn't do like the whole play. Oh no, no, no. But like the isn't Figaro there, part? Yeah. Isn't there? Isn't the cat named Figaro? Or isn't there? Well, that's from Pinocchio. Pinocchio, yeah. yeah, yeah. But isn't there? Was the Looney Tunes bit where? Uh, Bugs is giving Elmer the shave where it's like, he's like massaging his scalp. I'm always like, that sounds so good. And then like flowers burst out of his head. International listeners who don't know Looney Tunes are going to be like, what the actual fuck are you Americans on? And I'm going to say Looney Tunes. <laughs> so um, it's basically about a bunch of scheming people trying to fuck with Figaro's marriage. It's like a farce and it's, crazy yeah so i listened to one of the pieces that charlotte would have sung it wasn't obviously wasn't her and it's gorgeous and it's very high up it's like very i can't even i'm not going to but charlotte slayed and was a huge hit she went on to perform in guy marrying before joining her instructor james with a company in new orleans then her voice gave out she did not die but her voice gave out because she was a she was more of a contra alto 
which I believe is like mid range. And she's singing these like really high soprano parts. And basically she strained her voice so bad that like that doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. You can't do that. You physically cannot sing that high. So um, as quickly as her opera career began to take off, it crashed and burned. But from the ashes, she rose like a phoenix. And as they say, the show must go on. So staying within the theatrical world, Charlotte decided to become an actress, making her debut as Lady Macbeth in 1835 at only 18 years old. So she's got this up-and-coming opera career that crashes and burns all before she's 18, and now she's a professional actress. Wow. And yeah, no, that... The... Uh, episode you're thinking of from Looney Tunes is literally called Rabbit of Seville. Thanks, Looney Tunes. This is how you educate children. You just put in classical music and cartoons and they will figure it out. So, um, Charlotte was a hit and returned to New York to continue portraying Lady Macbeth under contract at, with the Bowery Theater. Fun little side fact, when I Googled Bowery Theater, because it sounded spooky as hell, Google's suggested search was... Bowery Theater murder. So naturally I had to look that shit up. And apparently there was originally a tavern on the side of the theater. And a couple of guys got into a drunken argument and one shot the other twice. And the most embarrassing part of that whole story is that all of this happened between eight and nine at night. Uh, Yeah. Who is like murderously drunk by 8 p.m.? Put your fucking hand down. (laughs) No. Jesus Christ, Kelly. They got murder level drunk. Give me the wine. Good thing there is none left. Yeah. (laughs) Good grief. It is 7.51. We are closing in on murder (laughs) hour, apparently. So back to Charlotte. Along with playing Lady Macbeth, Charlotte began playing male roles called breeches parts. Which is interesting because it used to be the exact opposite in theater. Oh, yeah. Only men could be in theater. only men would be in theater. So they played all the female parts. Yeah, so they were called this because of the breeches. Because women don't have pants permits yet. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have your pants? Are you wearing pants right now? Do you have your permit? Show me your permit for those pants. See, I don't need a pants permit because I'm wearing a onesie. Not, I was going to say. Not does it, pants, bitches. Does it count as pants if no, it's all one it's piece? one piece. Is it just a, a weird shirt? Ah. Or is it just like a really weird shirt? Maybe both. It's like Either or, depend, depending on like the situation you need to yeah. be in. No, it's a swimsuit officer. No, well, it's a t-shirt. You would get in trouble for yours because you have pockets. pockets. I'm fine because I'm being properly oppressed by having zero pockets. This is big enough that these are my pockets. They're supposed to be down Your here. boobs? No. <laughs> it's just big enough that I have enough room that I can move my pockets to my armpits. I mean, I also use my boobs as pockets sometimes. sometimes. Yep. Not as much anymore. Phone's got too big where it's like, oh, that thing's just sticking out of my oh, tits. Oh, yeah, well, and it's like... Yeah, like the edge sticks up right here. And then yeah. I'm like, now it looks like I have a third boob. Yep. <laughs> Anyways, what were we talking about? Okay. So my, her- drunk. my herstory headcanon is that Charlotte had a leather jacket that said breeches, babe, on the back. Yeah. That could uh, be one of our patches. I also want that. Yeah. <laughs> now, normally this is where I would make a joke about pants <laughs> God damn it. Hey, we did. I made a joke <laughs> about pants permits. Yeah. I forgot I wrote that. <laughs> oh, my God. We've been doing this too long. It's fantastic. Uh, 
But here's the cool but. Women playing male roles was actually widely accepted during this time. And like Kelly said, it used to be women could not be at the theater. At they couldn't be playing anyone. And it was like the straightest thing in the world for men to dress up in dresses and be women because we can't have women in the theater. So take that toxic masculinity. So at this time, it was normal. And this was partly because... Women dressed in tight breeches showed off their goods and male patrons were into it. And also, lady patrons, we know what you like. Uh, (laughs) Breeches are down there, Emily. Well, no one can see down there. I'm sitting at a desk. There you go. Just rubbing (laughs) her thighs. Yes, it's fine. So, Charlotte was described... Oh, no, I'm sorry. This was especially true for Charlotte. Uh, She actually received fan mail from women who got turned on by her playing a male Mm. in a romance with women because that was like the closest you could see to a lesbian (laughs) romance on the stage. So Charlotte was described by one critic as follows. Her stately form, rather masculine contour of continence, and powerful voice admirably adapted her to the line of male characters. It does bother me, though, that to say she's good at playing male characters, they had to describe her as masculine. Yeah, they're like, she's butch, so She's butch, so it's good. Along with male roles, Charlotte also took riskier roles. So she played an impoverished sex worker, so she did get to the sex worker part. She came around. We're fine. She's there. (laughs) I feel like this is herstory bingo, where it's like pants being controversial, sex work, um, yeah, describing a woman's appearance in like a non-flattering way or having to like describe them as flattering to, I don't know, it's weird. Anyway, so she plays this impoverished sex worker, Nancy Sykes, in Oliver Twist. Oh my God, I just got that. Okay, you know the movie Oliver and Company? Which is like Disney's version of yep, Oliver yep, Twist. Yep, yep, yep. The main bad guy's name was Sykes. Hmm. Ah! He was a mobster, though. Yeah, he was terrible. He had Dobermans. He was a creep. Yeah. Pitbull. He totally Turn on like, Pitbull. No, he, he was a human. Yeah, Sykes was a human. Okay, I'm thinking of the wrong person then. I was right? thinking, of the, oh, no, no, I was no, thinking no. of the mob no. boss. The, yeah. The bulldog. No. No, okay, Google it. Oh, I'm thinking of all dogs go to heaven for some reason. No, 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 no. Oliver and Company, the main bad guy was a human, and I believe his name was Sykes, and he had some Dobermans, and basically the guy who took care of all of the stray dogs, okay. he was indebted to the mob boss. Yeah, William Bill Sykes. Yeah, he's gross. Picture. Okay. So I'm getting that connection now. I literally just got that. Yeah, and he is. Dobermans. Yep. Yeah, he's gross. Anyway. Dogs are cute, though. (laughs) All dogs are cute. (laughs) So why was this role so risky, other than the fact that it literally blew my mind just now? At the time, and let's be honest, even now, actors were judged based on the roles that they played. So if Charlotte was playing a sex worker, people would associate her with promiscuity. It's like, well, if you're that comfortable getting paid to pretend to be a sex worker you must be pretty comfortable with just getting paid to have sex Jeez. like first of all what's wrong with that also what i know like, that's weird 
every person that's played Adolf Hitler is Adolf Hitler now. Like, yeah, that's how that works. Is that what we're saying? And like, I get getting typecast, but I'm like, Jesus Christ. So, um, Luckily for her, the more genteel feminine roles that she had played early in her career helped to cushion the blow to her reputation. So people were like, it's like if Anne Hathaway played Hitler, people would be like, well, God, she's so far away from Hitler because look at all this other stuff she did. Like, she's super cool and we like her. It's fine. So Charlotte didn't half-ass this role either. She actually spent several days in slums to prepare for the role and even used clothes from a woman she met in the slums as her costume. Good for her. Totally method. Putting all those other method actors to shame. So Charlotte's younger sister, Susan Webb Cushman, was growing up fast as by 14 years old, she was already married. Ew. Apparently... Her husband wasn't ready to settle down with his teenage bride because after Susan got pregnant, he split. Dick. Hmm. So Charlotte took Susan in and encouraged her to follow in her acting footsteps. The two began performing together in New York City and Philadelphia, and their most notable roles were as Romeo, played by Charlotte, and Juliet, played by Susan. So, like, they're totally, like, an acting dynasty. And, like... I don't know. I think that's that would totally sell. I would watch that. That just sounds cool and fun and hmm. a little crazy. Ow. Yeah. So English actor George Vendenhoff described Charlotte and Susan, and he wrote that Susan was, quote, a pretty creature, but had not the spark of Charlotte's genius. She pleased the fellows, however, Oof. and was the best walking lady on the American stage. So Charlotte, or sorry, Susan is kind of this... Typically, like, dainty, pretty, very feminine, while Charlotte is a little more, like, masculine and strong. But she's also got this really vibrant presence on stage that really draws people into her. Susan is not a bad actress, but the most of her appeal is that she's very pretty and fit. Like, she looks the part. She's just very... Very pretty. And like a walking lady on on in a theater setting would be like a woman who looks good to like walk on and off. Like yeah. she's just there to be feminine. So in the summer of 1843, Charlotte began dating painter Rosalie Sully, Ooh. daughter of the artist Thomas Sully. Rosalie was exhibiting her landscapes in New York and actually painted several miniatures of Charlotte. Aw, cute. The two actually met while Charlotte was having her portrait painted by Rosalie's father. And there's this unfinished portrait of Charlotte by Thomas Sully. And she looks like a sassy little devil. And I love it. Picture. Boom. (laughs) Like, I would let that girl wreck my life. (laughs) And she would. So the two began exchanging passionate letters. On June 1st, 1841, which is just in a few days and a fuck ton of years ago, Charlotte sent a ring to Rosalie for her birthday. On July 5th, 1844, Charlotte wrote in her diary that she and Rosalie had slept together and that the following day they were, quote, married. Their relationship, though, was not to last. Sad. Charlotte and Susan were ready to expand their horizons, and in 1845, Charlotte and Susan moved to England and began performing in London. So they're like, Charlotte wants to be a serious actress, and you can't do that unless you crack in London, you know? Like, that's where you go to make it. Okay. You know? It's it's like if you can make it in London, you can make it anywhere. 
So Charlotte and Rosalie tried to do the long distance thing, but it proved to be way too difficult as anyone who's ever been in a long distance relationship can attest to. Word reached Rosalie that Charlotte had started seeing someone else and Rosalie spiraled oh, into a no. deep depression. I know. I'm like, just break it off at that point. Like, come on, Charlotte, be cool. Rosalie died tragically young of a fever on July 8th, 1847, which I just realized was like a couple of days after she allegedly like married Charlotte. That's still like, like, like not, not the exact day, like days and years, but still. I know, that's still. She was only 29 years old. She's younger than us. That's sad. Um, it was her premature death that likely led to her not being recognized as a great artist because her budding career was cut so short. So she, so Thomas Sully was a little more famous and she was like ready to be one of the greats and then she died. So we hmm. did get at least one and then she died in here, Mark, yeah. your bingo cards. In London, Charlotte and Susan reprised their roles as Romeo and Juliet and they were labeled, quote, American Indians by London audiences who have clearly never seen an indigenous North American person ever. So they were such a, uh, sorry, the two were a hit. Charlotte was praised by critics for her showmanship while Susan was praised for the quote, grace and delicacy of her acting, which honestly, Juliet's like a pretty upper crust 14-year-old lady, Susan's probably perfect for that role because Juliet's pretty, like... Yeah. I don't know. Uh, They were such a smash that they performed in London for 80 nights before taking their tour all across England. While in England, Charlotte met writer and part-time actress Matilda Mary Hayes, and there's actually a photo of the two of them, and it almost looks like an indie folk album cover, and I love it. Hmm. Charlotte and Matilda began dating and became one of those couples where you can't really tell where one of them begins and the other ends. Mm. They were like fused as one person. They would dress alike and were constantly with each other. So like we've all known that couple and we all kind of hate them a little bit. They were publicly acknowledged to be and accepted as a romantic couple and the two would stay together for 10 years. Wow. It's like how long have you been married? Like seven, eight years. You and your husband have been together though for like 10 years, yeah. right? That's an insane amount of time. Hmm. So here's something interesting that I learned. Uh, you'd think that during this time, women openly engage in same sex relationships would be scandalous. However, the homophobia and sexism combined to make this weird vacuum of acceptance. Because physical attraction was seen as a purely masculine trait. Therefore, two women couldn't have physical desire for each other. This made lesbian relationships perfectly chaste and virtuous. So it was like, well, they don't have dicks that can get hard, so it's fine. It's not like they can fuck. Uh, how, How naive the world was. Okay, real quick. I worked with a woman who was... I believe bisexual Um, and she had, she was dating a woman at the time and she had some guy ask her like, how do you guys fuck? Like, 
does your girlfriend have to wear a strap on? Like he didn't understand. And she's like, dude, if the only way you can imagine having sex is jamming your dick into your girlfriend, then I feel really bad for your girlfriend. (laughs) That's great. Yeah. It's just like, I'm just going to shove it in there and this counts, right? This is fine. You're loving this, right? God damn Just it. waiting for the chair to be like. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. No, special. No, the chair like, doesn't love it. <laughs> special. Uh, oh my God. Why did something get wet on the chair? Oh, chair. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I don't know. I think that's so interesting. Yeah, where it's it like, is. I feel like it's almost one of those things where like people can handle and they're like, like their brains explode and they're like, it's fine to positives make a negative yeah or two negatives make a positive it's fine don't worry about it so this made me think of how lesbians are fetishized but two gay men are horrifying it's like no no no. two girls getting it on is fine i learned that girls can't get it on emily oh yeah it's totally chase i actually learned that the hard way i was in a club and i was dancing with a, a girlfriend and this these guys came up to us and started grinding us. I was like, hey, we're together. Like I was trying to say we were like lesbians. Yeah, and they were like, off. okay. And the grinding got way more aggressive. And I'm oh, like, yeah. no. <laughs> so to any like younger listeners, don't try to pretend Bring you're a guy lesbian you. to get guys to leave you alone because that's just gonna like that's what me and my friends would do we'd bring one guy with us and then he was in charge of like (laughs) saying he was with us he's like Like, yeah he's your dick camouflage no that happened like actually so okay so it was me this guy and then my other friend and my other friend and the guy didn't know each other yep so the girl was like oh i'm with her to like this guy that was hitting on her and he's like oh that's fine she can come too and then the guy my guy friend was there and stepped up and he goes no they're with me. And he, the guy just goes like, he's making the like, Oh, you and the two of them. And my guy friend's just like, yeah, they're mine. Or like, he didn't like, he wasn't possessive, but he was like, Here's yeah, the they're, they're with me. And That's he was like, literally, he the was like, he was like, good job, man. And like walked away. And I'm like, I don't even care what the implication was right there. I'm just glad he walked away. I'm glad he walked away. And then I hope he walked right into an oncoming bus. Right? That would have been great. That that That's so gross, though, because the idea that you're with a guy, it means that you're already owned. And it's like, oh, man, hey, man, I'm not trying to get up in your territory. I know, territory. the fact that it takes a guy for another guy to be like, oh, my bad, instead of a, a woman just being like, hey, I'm not interested. That's how it should work. If you're not interested, that should be fine. Okay. I'm going to give everyone the best piece of advice I will ever give you. If you are hitting on someone at a bar or anywhere else and you're like, hey, can I buy you a drink? Or, you know, do you, do you want to talk? Where you, you shoot your shot and the person says, no, here's what you do. You say, that's totally cool. If you change your mind, I'll be over, I'll be there. over there. Have a good night. Have a great night. Like... Because here, here's the thing. You come off as not a piece of shit. And two, I can guarantee you that person's probably going to be way more likely to be like, oh my God, they're not a piece of right, shit. Maybe I want to talk to them now. It is may, way more likely they may sec- second guess themselves than if you're super forceful. Yeah. Yeah. So seriously. Don't be a dick. It's so crazy how treating women like people is you a know, positive. might actually get you laid. Right? I actually have a friend who lost her virginity that way. The, nice. the, they, she was making out with this guy. And he was like, "Hi, get hot and heavy." She's like, "Hey, I, I don't think I'm ready. I've never had sex." But he's like, "Hey, I told I the last thing I want to do is put you in a position." And you're she's like, "Done." And she's like, "I am so wet right now. Your respect is hot. <laughs> Let's go bang." Yeah, 
I'm sorry. Boom, what boom. are we talking about? Okay. So around, okay. So around this time, we're back to Susan and Charlotte and they're in London and they're acting. Around this time, Susan married a chemist and teacher and retired from the stage to I'm settle down. A man. In, yes. Yes. Mm. Yes. Susan uh, is, as far as I know, well, she marries yeah. a man. Yeah. That does, she could be bisexual. She still might be a lesbian. We don't know. Well, Charlotte is definitely a lesbian. Susan, she she kind of like comes in and out of Charlotte's story. So I don't know a lot about her. Well, that's her. why I'm saying like, because there, especially in that time, there was a lot of lesbian women that would still marry just. Yeah. Because they basically had to. But, uh, you know, Susan marries this guy. They moved to Liverpool, England. And tragically, she died in 1859 at only 37 years old. You already checked that box. You can't check it twice. (laughs) So in 1849, Charlotte returned to the United States and continued acting. But by 1852, she decided to retire from acting. She and Matilda. That's what she's still with Matilda. She is still with Matilda who's making shit fly around the room with her mind. Yeah, exactly. Uh, So they moved to Rome, Italy, where they lived as best gal pals who strangely never married men, and no one knows why. But they were chased. Yeah, it was fine. Don't worry about it. They're just, like, really, really good friends. They're just, like, really emotionally connected, but there's no way for them to bang because either of them has a penis. Don't worry about it. that's just how it works. So Charlotte Matilda joined the expatriate community in Italy, which, conveniently for them, was made up of mostly lesbian artists, which they are. So they found their people. That's great. <laughs> like, dude, sign me up. Yeah, that I would totally so be a part of that community. Living in Rome, Italy with a bunch of lesbian artists, I'm like, why am I not there right now? <laughs> I mean, come on. So by this time, Charlotte had made a name for herself as an actress and used her notoriety to promote the work of her bestie, Edmonia Lewis, an artist of African and Ojibwe descent. And I definitely need to cover her because she's got plenty of information on her. Um, But she was getting kind of ignored because racism and Charlotte was using her own platform and her own popularity to be like, look Look at at this this bitch. As a woman empowering a woman. She's fucking the best. So Charlotte and Matilda's relationship came to an end when Matilda left Charlotte for sculptor Harriet Hosmer and drama ensued between the three women. Matilda, how could you? Matilda! Um, so Charlotte and Matilda did the on-again, off-again thing, but their relationship was just irreparably damaged by the friction. Charlotte yeah. began seeing sculptor Emma Stebbins. This is going to get real twisty with the relationship so i'm going to try and make it as clear as possible so apparently one night charlotte was writing a letter and matilda walked in on her thinking the note was for emma matilda threw in like flew into a rage and began chasing charlotte around flying around the room she's flying shit around with her mind she's being super not chill about it and the crazy thing about this is can't you see this happening today like there's already like distrust in the relationship. Who are you texting? No one. Is it that slut Emma? No. Bitch, I know it's Emma. And then they just start screaming at each yeah. other and throwing shit. Like modern day love story. Though. Who are you texting? I know you're texting her. I checked your phone. Why are you invading my privacy by checking my phone? Because bitch, you're a liar. <laughs> bitch, please. Yeah, which I think is interesting because Matilda sounds like it's the first one who kind of like stepped out. Well, and, and I think it's funny because Charlotte isn't writing to Emma. I don't think she is. Well, because didn't you say she was writing a letter to someone else? 
She she was writing a letter oh. and Matilda assumed it was for Emma. I don't know. I who mean, it, Matilda started this whole not them. Oh my god. Yeah, they honestly should have just not gotten back together because neither of them are yeah. like into it anymore. Anyway. The drama reached a fevered pitch when Matilda sued Charlotte, claiming that she had sacrificed her own career to sh- support Charlotte's. They sold out of court for an unknown. Yeah, that sounds some, like something that would happen today, forever. too. I was going to say, like, I put him through medical school and they left me for some young, slutty nurse. Like, yeah, oh, 100%. That's, a, that's just like. <laughs> People are terrible. <laughs> yeah, it's it's crazy. Um, I think the point is that we're all broken. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we're all bad at emotional situations. So Charlotte and Emma Stebbins, who Charlotte was already kind of seeing and maybe writing letters to, got together. But Charlotte was also seeing an 18-year-old actress named Emma Crow. Smart, though. Smart. Keep the same name because then you're not calling them like babe and stuff. And if then they can't get mad at you. You know, the, they don't catch on because you're calling them a nickname. You just say Emma and you're right either way. Kelly, I want you to look over and read the next sentence in my notes. <laughs> That's funny. What a great setup, though, because you don't have to worry about calling one the wrong yeah, name. You're not going to yell out the wrong name in bed because they both have the same name. Exactly. Also, I love Emma Crow. I'm like, I even that'll, Emily Crow would be pretty that'll fucking be your sweet. New bar name, yeah. Emma Crow. Emma Crow. So yeah, Charlotte's a bit of a drama bomb. Clearly, she thrives on it. Yeah, she's an actress. Yeah. They're all fucking dramatic. So Charlotte and Emma Stebbins decided to move to the United States, um, and I think it was maybe in the United States. I think it was in the United States where she met Emma Crow. The timeline was a little weird, but yeah, always is. Um. Before leaving Italy, Charlotte had a farewell performance in the title role of Hamlet. So she played Hamlet, and I would pay to fucking see that. She was billed as, quote, a lady universally acknowledges the greatest living tragic actress. Which I'm like, I kind of see that because she plays these tragic roles, but also, like, I don't know, her personal life is a little tragic. (laughs) So while in the United States, Charlotte was very close with some prominent politicians, including the legendary theater patron, President Abraham Lincoln, who maybe loved the theater a little too much. Uh, He told Charlotte that Macbeth was his favorite Shakespearean play, did not know, and that he was dying to see her as Lady Macbeth. You just had to make that I, You know what? I don't think I intended to when I wrote it, but as I read it, I was like, oh, my subconscious is such a bitch. So he got the chance when Charlotte played the role at Grover's Theater just a couple of years before he was assassinated in a different theater. Ford Theater. Yep. What a bummer. So proceeds from the play benefited sick and wounded soldiers of the American Civil War. Mm. Yay, Charlotte. Eventually, Charlotte returned to Italy, this time with Emma Crow, the 18-year-old actress. So she left... With one Emma and came back with a different one? Yes. Okay. Um, it kind of sounds like her and Emma Stebbins, the sculptor, were still together. Mm. Okay. But it's weird. And it's going to get weirder because Charlotte's nephew, Ned, who was Susan's son, so like her her sister, who she formerly acted in Romeo and Juliet with, took a liking to Emma Crow. And the two married. So Charlotte, who played Romeo, 
her sister who played Juliet Susan, her son was into Charlotte's girlfriend. And so Charlotte's girlfriend married her nephew. That's weird. Isn't it? Like, I mean. What a twisted web this woman weaves. How'd you guys meet? I was dating my husband's aunt at the time. Yeah, maybe they just don't tell that story. Oh. They just say they don't met worry. at a bar. It was a chaste relationship. <laughs> it was It was fine. Neither of us had a We're penis. We're both women. Yeah. It's fine. So, all I want in life is to be at that wedding Get everyone drunk and like listen to there them would spill be the tea. So much tea. So much people had so much shit It'd be to like say. Like the fucking Boston Tea Party up I in want, that wedding. I want like drink it all up. Get me you a know. straw. So you'd be like the only sober person because you'd be like, all right, just line up in a line. I'll yep. sit here. You all come to me. Yeah, my ears are open. Let's dish. <laughs> so Charlotte and Emma Stebbins, the sculptor, remained together during this time and would until Charlotte's death. Okay. So, yeah, it's it's yeah. weird, but they were still together. So, Charlotte made multiple final performances. I made redhead, so I could do that with you. Throughout her career, uh, but her actual final performance was in London's Globe Theater, which I've been to. I have to. Well, technically, the one that we've been to was the one that got rebuilt after it burned down. Yeah, it's like the only building in London with a thatch roof, and they have to have like oh, they insane like insane. Yeah sprinklers because the original burned down and so this is technically with the rest of goddamn london because it was a tinderbox one yeah and they were like this is still a tinderbox but we'll protect it this time yeah like you walk in and they give you a fire extinguisher just in case it's beautiful if they smell cigarette smoke on you they're like get the fuck out of here (laughs) 20 feet radius okay fun six degrees of separation story i was at the globe theater when i was studying abroad and I was doing a tour and we sat in the theater where they mm-hmm. still have performances. And you know, the butler from Fresh Prince of Bel Air, yeah. he was on the stage practicing. He was rehearsing. And you're just like, he was going to be, I think it was a Midsummer Night's Dream or something, but he was rehearsing. That's super the cool. butler from Fresh Prince of Bel Air in 2011 was in the Globe Theater with me and he was rehearsing Shakespeare. It's not even six degrees of separation. <laughs> I they they were like, don't take any pictures, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm like trying to be right. I bet that picture is still somewhere. I was like, no one's gonna believe me though. This guy was on TV in the eighties and nineties. Calm down. Finish your story. I love him so much. <laughs> okay. God damn. I'm sorry. Um, it's getting real hot in this it in is. these PJs, and I'm I'm getting drunk. So, okay, so Charlotte's You're in the like, Globe Theater. Where am I? I'm like, okay, Charlotte's girlfriend married her nephew. This they're still together. Spill tea, Globe Theater. Here we go. So in the Globe Theater, she reprised her very first theatrical role. And this is for of her Lady final Macbeth. performance? This is her, Man. like, final, final. Nice cyclical, like, career lip. there, girl. I know. I was like, girl, you're making this narrative so juicy. Um, So this was Lady Macbeth on May 15th, 1875, which is oh. just, like, a few days ago. Yeah. The following year, Charlotte came down with pneumonia and traveled back to Boston to seek treatment. However, the pneumonia took her life on her oh. Parker House hotel room on February 18th, 1876, and she was only 59 years old. I mean, that was 20 years older than her sister. 
which was also very, very sad. Emma Stebbins described Charlotte's funeral as, quote, simple and sweet and touching. Emma made special note that the chancel wall of the church where Charlotte's funeral uh, was held read an inscription, and it said this, This is my commandment to you, that ye love one another. And Emma commented that the inscription, quote, seemed to be speaking to all the lessons of her life. Legacy. In the wake of Charlotte's death, there were many tributes and memorial sermons, but as society's views on lesbians evolved, it became more demonized. It was like, whoa, 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 wait, you're telling me women can have sex without a penis? Oh, shit, we can't have this. What if they start expecting you to be satisfied? We can't do that. Mm-mm. Men were like, shut that shit down. Yeah. So as these ideas on lesbians evolved, Charlotte's legacy was swiftly buried and her achievements were trivialized. <sighs> Though, uh, sorry, through her acting affairs and travels, Charlotte did leave many marks. Yay. While in England, she befriended author Geraldine Jewsbury, who allegedly based a character on Charlotte in her novel, The Half-Sisters. And then the sculptor, Emma Stebbins, who was with her till the end yep. of her life. Um, one of her statues, the Angel of the Waters, which is in Central Park. So I guess there's like a really famous fountain in Central Park, and this is the statue in the middle of it. Um, this was said to be inspired by Charlotte. Carolyn Gage, a lesbian playwright who explores lesbian characters in her work, wrote a one-woman play titled The Last Reading of Charlotte Cushman, which I would love to see. And in 1907, the Charlotte Cushman Club was founded. Now known as the Charlotte Cushman Foundation, it funds regional nonprofit theaters and promotes the theater arts. I believe that's it. No, that is it. Yeah. I googled it. You can throw it up in the video. Uh, Charlotte's home in Boston is now a site on the Boston Women's Heritage Trail, which is a series of walking tours that highlights important sites to Boston's women's history. Just be a long tour. Oh shit, I have one. Oh my god, I know. There, there's Great. like I want to. You have do to that. like different like. This be like multi days. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's the story of Charlotte Cushman, the greatest tra- living tragic actress, and the breeches babe. Yeah. That was beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, I, I loved her story because I was like, oh, cool. Like, I feel like it would mean more if I could see her acting and, like, comment on it. But then her life got really dramatic, and I'm like, I am here for this. <laughs> you should be a soap opera. Oh, I love it. So, Emily, what are you thankful for? Um, Fuck. Is this how you feel every week? Yep. Okay. Well, I'm thankful that this video is finally fucking recording. Yay. It better. Okay. It better be recording. I swear to I'm God. I'm going to like smash everything if it's not. So something I'm thankful for is uh, Kelly and I were recently invited to attend a panel that was hosted by a tour of her own, which is a historical tour company in Washington, D.C. And they provide tours of D.C. that are centered on women's history. And we've been following them on Facebook for and Instagram for quite a while. And actually, they inspired me to do the Arlington Ladies about yep. this time last year. And so we were invited with a bunch of other female podcasters that we hugely admired. Uh, this included Hashtag History, Remedial Herstory, Coffee and Civics. The Explorers. The Explorers. Oh, my God. And, like, I was definitely having imposter syndrome. Like, we should not be be here like were we just here to round out the numbers but it was it was 
so amazing and we're so grateful to be invited. It was great to connect with these other podcasters that we've worked with or have admired from afar. And yeah, it, it was it was a lot of fun. And people were saying like our, our setup looks so professional. And I'm like, it's all an illusion, so Michael. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm really thankful that we got that opportunity. And I was definitely having imposter syndrome. I was like, no, like you didn't ask to be here. You were invited. It's fine. Right, like, like I like had to give Breathe. my, per- I had to give myself permission to feel like I deserve to be there. And that was a good feeling. And uh, Kelly and they, they had a tour of her own is going to be having this big event in November. And Kelly and I are like putting it in our calendars, like, okay, we're playing a trip to DC in November. Let's try to make it's this be happen. So, much fun. so that's what I'm thankful for. I'm also thankful for that, but I'm also thankful I only had one class this week and I only have one class next week. Yeah. It's great. So I normally have three classes a week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So this week I only had my Wednesday class and next week I only have my Thursday class. Nice. So that'll be good. It's nice to get a fucking break, man. I know. I mean, I'll probably just be doing homework, but it's still still nice. It's three hours then of, it's of on my your night time. that I have time to do whatever I want. Yeah. Awesome. And I'm thankful for you. I don't know what that means. Um, I didn't see what you did. I'm just going to ignore it. I'll just put a smiley face over your face. You'll see in the edit. Yep. And you're going to be like, Emily, you idiot. Anyway, thank you so much for listening or watching. If you're a patron, remember, you can see all this craziness and see my super obscene gestures for as little as $1 a month. Also, please like us on Facebook at Whiny About Herstory, Instagram at WAHpod. Twitter at WAH underscore pod. Our website is whiningaboutherstory.com. And our email is whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com, where we would love to hear from you anything you want. And we've already mentioned our Patreon. We also have a Teespring where we have some sweet sweet merch that you can buy yeah get your look historical also please raise five stars wherever you listen it costs you nothing it takes three seconds and it gives us all the warm fuzzies and really helps support the show it helps other people find us and yeah like that's something on our bad days at least i know on my bad days i'll go like read one of our five star reviews and be like people like me i listen to people saying they said a bad word. They said a bad word. I'm like, you're damn right. I, I, did. I will say, <laughs> I can't remember who said it now, but one of, oh, it was when I finally met some of my like cohort people from my classes in person. And one of them apparently has listened to the podcast. Shut up. And oh, she, no. No, no, it was good because she looked at me and she goes, I thought that was just a voice you did for the podcast, but that's just your voice. And I fucking love it. And I'm like, I have always hated my, I always, I always think my voice is really deep. And so I've never really liked my voice. So she said that and I'm like, you like my voice. Can she lead our fan club now? Can she handle our email? Yeah, right. Do you want want to handle our email? Because I'm the only one who does it. Oh my God. You're so good at our emails. That's my idea. I just go, hey, Emily, we got an email. Yeah. You should go read it. It's fine. That's really sweet. What a nice little ego boost. I, know. I also love that someone was like, oh, you have a podcast? I'm going to actually listen to it because who does that? All right. Well, thank you so much for listening and watching another episode of Whiny About Herstory. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day. Bye. Bye.